you have a copy of God's Word, I want to ask you to take it tonight, and uh, we're going to start in 1 John 4, 18, and then we're going to jump almost immediately over back to Mark chapter 10. Um, I was, what I basically did uh, this morning, uh, just for really the lack of the, the sake of time, is you basically got the first and last point of a four-point sermon. And so I'm going to give you the middle tonight. You're going to get the meat between the bread, hopefully tonight. Um, and really, this was, uh, you know, out of this whole, these three verses that we're going to look at, 32, 33, and 34, um, there were two words all week as I studied that just jumped out off the page at me. And that's really what we're going to look at tonight. And it deals with this issue of fear. Um, and to lead in, I wanted to start with this verse. My intention was to come back tonight and just preach from this, this verse tonight. But I think it would be better to, uh, in the providence of God, sort of marry these two together. 1 John 4.18, we've been looking at this, memorizing this all month long together, says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And uh, we, we read that. And as I began at the beginning of the month looking at that verse and that we are not to fear. There is no fear in love. Well, let's be honest. When, when you're going through something very, very difficult and someone says, don't fear, does that really help? No. I mean, most of the time, you know, I mean, most of the time it really doesn't. And so I, I, I wrestled with this and I started to really think about this. I started thinking we're not to fear, but God, how do we not fear? There's some very fearful situations. If we're to follow God, there's going to be some some circumstances, some situations that we're asked to go into that are extremely fearful. So, God, how do we do this? So I began to just kind of pray with God and look at this verse and then look at it in context. If you jump up to the verse right before verse 18 in 1 John 4. John here writes, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And it clicked with me when God here, through his word, through John, says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. What he's talking about is this fear of the final day. This fear of ultimate judgment. There is coming a day that is going to be a very, very dreadful, a very fearful day. But not for us. There is no fear in that day. Why? Because of the perfect love of God through His Son Christ. I mean, that's there is no fear for us. We don't look to the end. You know, I could, you know, I don't know what I would do if today, I, I, I have just thought through this in the last couple of hours, if, if it were me laying in that bed and there was a tumor in my brain that had grown to the point where it had crossed the, the, the middle line of my brain and my body was rapidly doing things that it should not do and I was in severe pain, would, would, I, would I face death with no fear? 
would I, would I go through? I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I pray that I would still say there is no fear because I have been perfectly loved. There is nothing that I am headed toward that I'm afraid of. The reality is I don't know. Then I came to this text that I want us to spend the majority of our time on. And uh, this is probably why it jumped out at me this week. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. That's one of the words. One of the words that just jumped off the page. They were amazed. And those who followed were, the other word, afraid. And taking the twelve, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, And after three days, he will rise. So I came to this text and I've been meditating on there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. The one who fears has not been perfected in love. I've been thinking on this. And I come to this text and it says here that those who followed were afraid. And so I had to do some some reconciling here. And I want to show you, I think, what this text means and bring it back around together with 1 John chapter 4. We looked this morning, and this is about all I got to this morning, was the fact that Jesus was resolute. He was determined to get to Jerusalem. Um, Have you ever talked with somebody that just, their, their view of the passion of Christ, not the movie, but the actual, the passion of Christ, Him going to the cross, there's sort of view of it was that boy that's just horrible what happened to jesus you know that that, i can't believe what happened to jesus well the reality is nothing happened to jesus now here jesus says i want to tell you what's going to happen to me but he's in control of the whole situation he's going of his own accord he is determined to get there knowing full well what he is walking into and what will happen to him We saw this in so many other cases where he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. He knew just what was around the bend. And he knew that here, and he is determined to go all the more. And then we come to these two words. And I want just to spend some time here. The followers were afraid of what they were walking into. Two specific words, amazed and afraid. Um, Jesus here, in the context of this passage, he's been teaching in this section, in this area called Perea. He had taught on things like divorce, children, and then he had had this sort of confrontation with the rich young ruler. And he had then turned to his disciples and said, how difficult it will be for a man or a woman who has money to enter the kingdom of God. And it says that they were all amazed, and he repeats it, how difficult it will be to enter the kingdom. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven, enter the kingdom of God. They were amazed at this. This crowd had gathered during all of this teaching. They were uh, made up of all sorts of people. 
them. There were rich people. There were poor people. There were children. There were senior adults. They were just all over the place. They had just crowded in to hear Jesus teach. And along, along through his teaching, some of them became convinced, you know, I think I want to tag along and hear what else he has to say. Then you had those who actually followed. Those who followed were afraid. This, this is a reference to the twelve. These are the twelve disciples. Um, those who had decided to, the word followed there means uh, become his disciple. They had decided to join his camp, to side with his party. These are the ones who were all in. This is a reference to them. So let me ask you this. What's the difference between these two emotions? What is the difference between being amazed and being afraid? Just think about it. You don't have to answer out loud. I think the difference is that one comes from following and the other can be experienced from a distance. You can be amazed from a distance. You can be afraid from a distance as well, but you're not afraid like you are if you're there in it invested. Let me me borrow an illustration and personalize it from Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp is a writer, and if you come across any of his books, I would... I would encourage you to get any of Paul Tripp's books that you can. But Paul talked about with his family, they used to go on vacation or holiday uh, up to the Jersey Shore. He he lived up north, and they would go to the Jersey Shore for for vacation. And um, they just had this great time with their family. And and it reminded me of of what we do. We don't go to the Jersey Shore, but we go to Myrtle Beach, next best thing. And uh, you go to Myrtle Beach, and, and uh, they've got this brand new. Anybody been to Myrtle Beach since they built the humongous uh, Ferris wheel there? Uh, what's it called? Sky wheel? The sky wheel there? It's a big Ferris wheel is all it is. Uh, but it is, it is monstrous. Uh, I, I said going. People asked me beforehand, uh, are you going to ride the new sky wheel? And I said, absolutely not. Uh, I, don't do, I don't do heights very well. I just don't do them very well at all. But I got there and I saw the, the sky wheel and I realized that these are enclosed sort of gondolas. I th- they're air conditioned in there. You know, I don't know what all's in there, but I think I could do that. I looked at it and I said, you know, I, I didn't think I could do this because I was picturing the Ferris wheel that I grew up with that my dad would wait till we were up on the top and then began to rock with us in the Ferris wheel. And I was so afraid I was going to get up there. My daughter, Abby, was going to start rocking with me, you know. And I was going to scream like like a little girl, you know. And then I saw these enclosed gondolas, and I thought, I could do that. I I think I'll do that. And then I found out how much it was. I didn't want to pay the price. I was too cheap to do that. But then then I looked across the street, feeling very good about myself, feeling very confident. And across the street, from the sky wheel, is the human slingshot. I don't know what the thing's really called. Have you seen this thing? It's this metal contraption that they strap you and a couple of your friends into, maybe just two people into, you strap into, and you're attached to these humongous rubber bands. And they pull you back, and once you're in there and ready to go, they hit the lever, and they shoot you into the stratosphere. I mean, it is way out there. I mean, you're just, I mean, you are the rock coming out of the slingshot, okay? Y'all get me with this? Crazy. They, they film these people. There's a camera mounted in, in the metal contraption. 
and you can watch it from the street. And, and you see people in there that are just, oh, they're having a great time. And you always, there's always one person that you know got talked into. It was a dare. And they're, and they're sweating. And they're pale. And you know that they're really about to be sick at any minute. And they haven't even started yet. And then all of a sudden, they hit that lever. And there they go. And you see these people, the facial expressions, unreal. Here's, here's my illustration to you. I was amazed at that. I was amazed from a distance. But I will never be afraid because I am in it. You would have to treat me like B.A. Baracus on the A-team getting him on an airplane. You would have to drug me and load me onto this thing because I'm not getting on. I'm not going to be afraid. That's the difference here. One can be experienced from a distance. I could stand across the street and laugh at these people and be amazed all night long. But I was not about to strap myself in and put myself through the fear. And that's what I was arrested with as I studied this. There appears to be in this text one group who is amazed. They're these that have gathered in during Jesus' teaching. They've come around. They're interested in what he's saying. He's saying things that are amazing. He's saying things about divorce that have never been said before. He's saying things that are offensive to this culture. He's saying things about children that elevates them to a level in society that they have never possessed ever. He's speaking to this rich, young ruler, this wealthy, healthy, influential guy in a way that is just amazing. And they gather around, they flock around Jesus, and they tag along. It it says even the rich, young ruler, as Jesus was heading out, runs up to him on the road. He's amazed. Then it says, and those who followed were afraid. At what were those in the crowd amazed? I just had to ask this question. Well, I think they were amazed at Jesus' teaching about rich people entering the kingdom of God. What kind of people would this have drawn to Jesus? Jesus' teaching that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person, than it would be for a rich person to get into to heaven what kind of people would then be amazed at this and follow well it probably caused a great number of poor or common people to be amazed and begin to tag along think about it if all of a sudden this one who teaches with authority begins to speak that wealth is not necessarily a sign of the blessing of god but the poor are Potentially just as blessed of God, just as favorable in the eyes of God as are the rich. And they probably tagged along because this was the first glimmer of hope that they had ever seen. I would imagine, too, that it caused a great number of wealthy people to tag along. Some of them because they were angry. Some of them, though, because they began for the first time to understand that their wealth had become their God. And they began to be intrigued about this. They began to be concerned about their own standing in the eyes of God. 
And I would imagine that probably some of the Pharisees and the scribes, all of them probably began to tag along as well. They were already tagging along, trying to, trying to catch Jesus messing up at any, anywhere that he would go. So when he began to talk about things that were controversial, they were right there, I would imagine, on his heels, thinking, oh, he will definitely slip up now. You know, it's like when someone starts talking about politics, you know, you, you listen because they're about to hang themselves, you know. That's what they were doing. They, I think they were flocking along. I think this is what intrigued them. This is what amazed them. But I think more than his teaching about wealth, I think they were also amazed as they watched Jesus in all of, all of what he said and did, moving so resolutely toward Jerusalem. Knowing that Jerusalem was the very, the very symbol of opposition against him. He's going into the very teeth of the opposition here. And he's doing so without anybody driving him. No one's pushing him. And so I think they're, stepping, they're standing back and they're amazed at Jesus. And they will tag along for some time. This is where I think a lot of modern day people are with Jesus. They are amazed. They are simply, merely amazed at what they've heard that Jesus can do for them. And their faith, what they call faith, may not really be faith at all. It may simply be this narcissistic amazement. Wanting to see what this this God can do for them. And this is why the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, is rampant. It's why you can't turn on television where there is preaching without hearing sometimes, most of the time, someone on there saying, if you would just sow this seed, then everything would turn out to your favor. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Because there are so many people that are simply in it for what God can do for them. And they're amazed at the thought of this. I think this is where maybe a lot of even our own church members are at. I think there are many people, many church members, who are merely amazed at the audacity of the whole thing. They're just following, just waiting for the whole thing to blow up because they know it can't really be real. To claim that there is one way to God, to claim exclusivity, I mean, that's just audacious. And they're amazed at it, and they will follow, and they will watch, and when when it finally comes crashing down, they will say, ah, I told you so. The reality is, it will never come crashing down. Because it's not built on the schemes or the wiles of man. It is the very plan of God. I think this is where a lot of our church members are. They are simply amazed, but they have never put themselves in the position where they have to be afraid. We have bought into the lie in church life, in Christianity, particularly in the South, that Christianity needs, is, is safe. Following Christ is comfortable. But Jesus wants me to be happy, doesn't he? I mean... What's all the Sermon on the Mount about? Blessed are those. Happy are those. 
Doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't he want me to find the perfect spouse? Doesn't he want me to have the perfect job? Doesn't he want me to to have the perfect retirement plan? Doesn't he want me to have that house? Doesn't he want me to have these things? And the reality is, those aren't even on the radar. God is sovereign over all of that, but what God is more concerned about than your temporal, earthly prosperity and happiness, God is so much more concerned with the mission that he began by sending his son to the earth. And he wants to get us. Hear me on this out of the way. So that the image of Christ can be fully reflected in our lives and who we are. So that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. That's the only command that he has ever really given us. Go make disciples. We spend so much of our lives being amazed at trinket Christianity. Being amazed at the, at the sideshow of it all. And we are missing what God is calling us to. There are so many Christians, church members, who need desperately to strap themselves into that metal contraption and pull the lever. Figuratively, not literally. We're not taking a field trip tonight. So then, if that's what these were amazed by, then what were his followers afraid of? What were his followers afraid of? Well, Scripture tells us here. I I think probably at least one of the things that they were afraid of is they were afraid that exactly what he had already told them would actually happen. Keep in mind, this is the third time that Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And in their mind, they're thinking, no, you're our political Messiah. You are to deliver us from Roman tyranny. You're not to die. The Messiah can't die. And the more Jesus just keeps talking about this, I think probably they're fearful of this. The first time Jesus told them this, what happened? Peter rebuked him. Remember that? Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you know, I I know what you just said, but I'm not sure you have this right, Jesus. Jesus, we believe that you're the Christ. I mean, you're the Messiah, Jesus. You're not going to die. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. The second time, then, Jesus tells them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. What happens? They learned enough the first time not to open their mouths. Scripture specifically says in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31 of Mark, they didn't understand, but they were afraid to ask. They weren't about to open their mouths this time. You know, and Peter's so impulsive, he might have thought about it, but maybe somebody threw that hand over his mouth. They were afraid that what Jesus had actually told them might actually come true. Maybe they were afraid that there would be potential combat. 
if Jesus was wrong and they were right and he was to be this political Messiah that would deliver them from the Roman oppression, then maybe there's going to be this combat, this, this battle that they're about to go into. And they're not trained soldiers. And maybe some of them will have to lose their life in this battle to see freedom come. This, I think, is what Thomas had in mind when he said, let us also go that we may die with him. This is what Peter had in mind when he said, even if everybody else falls away, I will never leave you. I will never fall away. And that particular passage goes on to say that all the other disciples said the same thing. I think they're afraid of that. I think possibly they're afraid of this future persecution. Remember back in in verse 30 of, of this same chapter in Mark chapter 10? Jesus said to them, whoever leaves father or mother or brother or sisters or homes or land or all this will by no means strike out in this world, but they will have 100 times that in this world. And he names it all again, leaves out father, but he adds and persecution too. That part of the inheritance of the one who follows Christ is persecution. And maybe what they had in their mind, what they were afraid of, is what would this persecution look like if we do go to Jerusalem and Jesus does die, but he still continues this movement through us. What will this persecution look like? Maybe they were even afraid of that their own salvation was secure. I mean, Jesus had just said that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to go into heaven. They had always known that wealth was a sign of the favor of God. And that's why they say here, then, who could be saved? Jesus then launches into, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so I think there's a lot of fears running through their head. We, often, we oftentimes think that faith isn't faith if we're afraid. This was what I was arrested with this week. We have, we've come to preach texts like this and teach texts like this in a very different way. The temptation was for me to teach this text as if the point were Jesus was resolved to go to Jerusalem. So you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you go to Jerusalem too. That's not the point of this text. The point is that we we will never have it all together. Following Christ means that we will be fearful at times. That there will be things that are very scary. There will be things that we have to go and do because... We've been commanded to do so, led by the Spirit to do so, that we don't want to do. They're very fearful things. Oftentimes we think that we've got to have it all together before we can really be used in the kingdom of God. There are some of you even here tonight sitting here thinking that you can't do anything in the church because you still struggle with certain areas. And that when you get it all together, then you'll get off the sidelines and you'll get in the game. You should really 
look for someone else because I'm just I just don't have it all together is your mentality. The reality is none of us have it all together. I live in fear every day that one day you'll wake up and realize how incompetent I am as your pastor. And you'll say, what were we thinking? There's only one who perfectly obeyed. There's only one who resolutely, perfectly went to Jerusalem. I got to tell you, I don't do that all the time, and neither do you. There are times when I know what I should do, but I fail to do it. And it, it this is good. While Jesus is preparing them so that when he leaves that they would be ready, this is also for us so that we would understand that as long as we're on this planet, following Christ is never going to be completely easy, pain-free, fear-free. We're going to be in some very fearful situations. Christianity was never meant to be perfect. But it doesn't mean that because we are afraid that we should pull ourselves out of the game and sit on the sidelines and do nothing and let those who are really mature in Christ do the work because they, they resolutely go to Jerusalem. I just don't do that. Do you get it? When you do that, you're no different than the people who are simply amazed. What we need is for all of us to admit that none of us have it all together. None of us have arrived. Paul, who wrote 13 letters in our New Testament, half of our New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. He said, I have not arrived. But I forget what's behind me and I press on. I pull all of this from the fact that Jesus doesn't clear the roster. You know, you would expect if we were writing this, if, if this was the story today and we were we were recruiting a group to follow and go with Jesus to Jerusalem and prepare to take on his mission once he dies and carry out the work of the gospel and build the church that would take the gospel to the nations. If we came across this and, and the 12 guys that are following are afraid, <laughs> we would go, hey, guys, I think maybe we should have a timeout. Let's renominate. You know, let's, let's just get some a, a new slate of people in here. Let's renominate. We'll vote on that. Then we'll, we'll choose the new 12 because these guys, they're just not ready yet. But Jesus doesn't clear the slate. He takes the guys who are afraid. Did they follow perfectly? No. <laughs> they abandoned him. Peter denies him. Thomas, even after the fact, when his brothers are saying, we've seen Jesus. Thomas, no you haven't. I'll believe it when I put my hand in the scar. Did they follow perfectly? No. But Jesus keeps them and keeps conforming them to his image. He leaves so that the helper might come. And then we go back tonight. 1 John 
1 John chapter 4, verse 18. I want us just to think about what we just looked at in this, this passage tonight. 1 John four eighteen, and think about it in that light. There is no fear in love. The perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When you think about that in light of what we just looked at, the reality is, is that when it comes to coming judgment, we are perfected in love. But when it comes to following Christ, we are being perfected in love. We are in the same position that all of these disciples were in. And it is okay to be afraid in following him. It is not okay to never be afraid. It is not okay for us to hide ourselves away and say, I'd rather just not be put in that situation. I'd rather not be perfected in love. I'd rather sit back and let someone else do it. The reality is we are perfected in love through fear, through trials that bring on fear within us. It teaches us to cling to the one who has perfectly loved us. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, tonight your word, God, I don't know if it was as loud and clear and and needed for others as it was for me this week, but God, I know where I am with you. God, I know how imperfect I am. God, I know how desperate I am for the gospel. So God, it was very comforting for me this week to see that those 12 who walked closer to you than anyone else on the planet, that they also struggled, that they also were fearful. They didn't stay in the realm of amazement. They followed, but they followed in an imperfect way so that a perfect God could get the glory. And God, I pray that that would be increasingly what you would do in my life, in the lives of those who are here. God, that you would take those areas where we are weak, and God, that you would be shown to be strong. God, that you would take the details of our lives, and just as you knew exactly what was going to transpire at Jerusalem ahead of time, you knew it before it happened, God, you also know what will happen every single day of our lives and beyond. And God, I pray that we would be pulled aside by you on very, very often and that we would hear you say, this is what's happening. This is where we're going. Trust me. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great night.